Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Adventures podcast. I'm really excited to be back here hosting our guest today. Our guest is Brenda Misson and we're going to talk about her newly released book called Tumble Home. Uh, Tumble Home, One Woman's Canoeing Adventures in the Divine Near Wilderness. Um, Now, we have tried really hard to do this interview, I must say, and I can hear Brenda giggling in the background because she knows just how hard we've tried. We actually tried to do um, the podcast we we thought we had a few months ago, just before the book was released, Um, but then we had a problem with the recording uploading because Brenda lives quite remotely and as a result her bandwidth wasn't strong enough to to uh, upload the finished project so this just attests to her uh, living the wilderness life Um, but we're back now we've got everything tuned up and ready to go since I spoke to Brenda last she's done several live events and readings from her book and in fact the first print of her book has already sold out and a second printing is coming out very soon so welcome Brenda I'm so glad to be doing this after so many different uh, tries that we've had to do Um, I've seen the book described as part adventure part spiritual memory and a great part ode to the earth which I thought was just like a beautiful description Um, but why don't you tell us about the book Thank you. Thank you, Karen. I am so relieved we're finally making this happen. Um, as you say, we've done uh, several tries and um, I didn't. I just didn't want to give up. I'm glad you didn't. I am so glad you didn't. We almost had given up for this second try and then Brenda had one idea, one last hope. We thought this was maybe just destined not to happen, but the last last thing worked, and here we are. So tell us about the book. Uh, yes, so um, Tumble Home is, as you say, part travel adventure, part spiritual memoir, and great part ode to the earth. It chronicles my solo canoe trips that I took in Ontario's Algonquin Provincial Park between 1998 and 2004. And some of your listeners may know that Algonquin Provincial Park is Ontario's oldest provincial park, and it is 7,600 square kilometer tract of more than 2,000 lakes and miles of snaking river and creek. The forests are mixed coniferous and deciduous, and there's lots of Canadian shield rock, which is my favorite. And I've been canoeing there in the park for 35 years now, and nearly 25 years of those have been on my own. So um, in Tumblehome, each canoe trip or stay on one lake is a chapter, and the trips into the interior of the park are interspersed with my own interior journey, both my spiritual journey and my emotional journey. 
um, this, my spiritual journey chronicles my journey, as I call it, out of the church and into the woods, which is a bit tongue in cheek. It's not in a way that negates the more traditionally religious path, but it's my path. And emotionally, it chronicles my journey from a debilitating sense of a lack of self-worth and self-criticism to a much more all-encompassing love for myself and for others. Of course, I'm still working on this. I would say that many travel adventures, especially by people on their own, are undertaken to overcome a specific fear or take on a specific challenge to prove something to yourself. But that's not the case with Tumble Home. It's much more of a contemplative trip, um, a contemplative chronicle. I undertook the, uh, the, the trips simply because I wanted to be in Algonquin. Though, yes, I did have to face my fears in order to do that. Yeah, I would think you would have to face your fears because going out into the bush on your own um, does seem a little bit uh, intimidating, for sure. It was, and it wasn't something that I that I really wanted to do. the The reason that I began to go on my own was simply because I one by one was losing the the my canoeing partners. They were mostly women. They were starting to get married and have children. These were we were in our mid to late thirties at the time, and um, I didn't want to let the lack of a canoeing partner to stop me from going into the bush. Uh, so I I actually trained my niece Harriet. She was just turned 12 at the time. I took her on, um, on a couple of canoe trips. We actually ended up doing five in all, but after our second annual canoe trip together, I decided that if I could be the sole adult responsible for an adolescent girl and the carrier of the heavier gear, she certainly pulled her weight, um, you know, the planner of the trip, um, the carrier of the canoe, then in theory, I could be the sole adult responsible for myself. <laughs> so I actually embarked on, it wasn't actually a trip. I sat on one lake, one of the head lakes, which has no portages between you and the takeout. I did that in 1998 for four nights just to see if I had the capability to manage the canoe on my own in the winds. And more importantly, to see if I had the nerve <laughs> to be out there by myself and I survived. <laughs> Even though I, I do have a, I did have what I call paranoia, a severe fear of bears. And that was, that plagued me through many of my first uh, few years of trips. Um, but I just decided I had just had to do it anyway, because I really wanted to be, I didn't want to let a lack of partner stop me from going on my trips. And so I never have let it stop me. Uh, well, I admire um, your vulnerability that you'd be willing to go out in the wilderness alone and be vulnerable and kind of conquer your fear, so to speak. And I would think that paranoia would be quite a reasonable thing, at least initially. Um, and then, and then I think I I also was um, really taken in by um, the vulnerability just to write the book because it it struck me that it was very personal and. And I think it was that vulnerability that was so beautiful and really so compelling about it, you know, like really exposing part of yourself in the trip itself, but also in writing the book. And it got me wondering, um, how did you how did you come to write the book? Well, actually, it was a friend after I'd done about five or six trips. Um, they were annual trips. And a friend suggested that I write um, kind of a combination of a how to guide for women or anyone who wanted to go solo 
and just chronicle my canoe trips. But I didn't really feel like a lot happened on my canoe trips, thankfully. And that's why I decided to intersperse my interior journey um, with it. And I had moved to the Madawaska River, um, where I live now, in this more more remote area of central Ontario. And so even up out the door at home, I began to see more wildlife and have more experiences in the in the near wilderness. And um, a good friend of mine who's um, very um, present in this narrative, um, she's a close friend and she was my spiritual mentor throughout this whole time. Her name's Asante. She introduced me to the indigenous spirituality of animal totems. And I know that there are different, I'm not an expert and I don't pretend to be an expert on indigenous spirituality, but she pointed me in the direction of a couple of books which um, describe the medicine, the healing medicine that each animal carries, which can help us to heal. If we see an animal or dream about one, that animal or bird or insect, it can be anything, can have a message for you that resonates with you. And the more time I began to spend outside, the more I, I found that those messages did resonate with me, whatever, whatever the animal or the bird was, a loon or an eagle or a moose. And I would look it up in the book. And so I actually ended up quoting extensively from these source books um, as I did uh, meet with different creatures on my canoe trips. And I also quote from other spiritual traditions as well in the book, from Buddhist, from Christian, even though I ended up leaving the church, I still quote from Christian writers who make sense to me, um, Hindu, Taoist. So it's kind of a combination of all those um, things. I bring those all together. I, I really like the way you described Asante and her role in your life. Um, and it got me wishing I had someone like that myself in my life, someone to kind of guide, yeah, guide you or even just give you ideas. And I, because I, I read the book a couple of times now, I was also really interested in the, um, like the symbolism of the animals that you were encountering and how reflecting on that kind of, I don't know, gave you new insights into something that was happening around you. So I, I did find that uh, quite compelling. Well, and there, and it's open to anyone. I think it's just, it's just a matter of paying attention. I mean, even if you live in an urban area, there's always, I think there's more wildlife in urban areas now <laughs> than, than there is in, in more wilderness areas. Um, and I think it's, it's anyone can, um, can pay attention and, and find the gifts of those creatures in their lives. I was also really impressed in the book about um, uh, how there was a lot of apparent synchronicity happening, how uh, things would just seem to appear to you in one form or another at just the right time. So I was quite fascinated by that. I don't know if that was something you were on purpose showing or if that just was what was happening there. I totally believe in uh, what I call synchronicity of events. I think that if you start more paying attention to the way you live your life, to listening to that still small voice within, to asking for guidance, whoever you, you know, whoever, if you, if you even think there's a higher power or a presence, um, I believe that there's a divine presence in us all and in all of nature. And I think we can align with it. And I think if you um, start 
paying more attention in that way and listening and asking to be guided, then, then yes, I think things do start happening in a more synchronistic way that things come your way when you need them. They may not, your life may not be going in the way you expected it, but I think there are always uh, little blessings that come along that, that help you in that way. And I know that happened with me, even on, on my canoe trips in, um, I, I seem to have this, it's not me, but it. I do ask that rain. I don't like starting canoe trips in the rain, and I don't like packing up a canoe trip in the rain, and I certainly don't like setting up a, a, a campsite in the rain. <laughs> so I've always asked for the rain if it's going to come to hold off until I have a campsite set up or to give me a break in the morning so I can get my tent down. And I'm truly amazed because it always it always happens. Even on my, my last trip that I just came back from, I just did a, a nine-day canoe trip in Algonquin. I came out a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and, and on that trip, I was actually, every step of the way, I was, I was asking for guidance, asking to be kept safe, asking for tailwinds, um, you know, for, for the rain to hold off. And then at the same time, I'm also thanking, I'm thanking the power that what, whoever it is, I don't, I don't even pretend to know what kind of power or guidance it is. Um, I call it the universe just because it's a simple, uh, non-gendered term. Um, I thank the universe for, for granting my requests and I thank it for doing that even before the requests are granted. <laughs> and then I just, I let go and I trust. And on this trip, I had a few days of rain and um, I was, I was amazed because it still was happening where I would get to a campsite. You know, the, I can see the rain is coming. I, in one case, I could see that the, the dark clouds had gone over the campsite and gone to the east and I thought okay maybe it's going to miss me and then I thought no you know what I think that I think that cloud's going to swing around and come back so I actually just called out could you give me an hour <laughs> seriously and I went about my you know tried to find the best um, I was already on the campsite but trying to find a good place where I could string a tarp up and it'd be level and I wouldn't get water and you know in a dip in the tent so I finally found the right place and got the tent set up and all the gear inside and set the tarp up and then the rain came like literally as soon as I finished putting the tarp up and I looked at my watch and it was exactly an hour later and I just lay down and laughed it's just like the results were just so dramatic and I it's not that I have some special power over the weather I think it's more it really isn't about trying to align yourself with the conditions of your life and not just on a canoe trip. I, I actually think that it's good to bring this home into your quote real life. And even though if you get busy with work or, um, you know, your social life or whatever, I think there, if you can take a moment to, to still ask for guidance and still, um, and it's not just about keeping myself safe, but it's also about, you know, where can I be of assistance to someone? And on my canoe trips, I've ended up, um, helping other people when I actually thought that other people would need to help me, <laughs> especially being on my own. And it's ended up that I've been in the right time and place to help other people. Um, a couple that had capsized their canoe and um, a young man who was paddling with a frying pan, believe it or not, <laughs> um, was able to give him shelter overnight and also arrange for him to get a paddle, a real paddle to paddle with. And, and that's the way I want to live my life at home too. So the canoe trips really they're really um, a time out for me to reconnect with that 
part of myself and to remember who I am and to remember how I want to be in the world. So yeah, the synchronicity, not just out, it's not just there, it's, it's in all of my life. And I think it can be in everyone's life. I love that idea of asking the universe to hold off on the rain because uh, like you, like if I'm on a bike trip or a hiking trip, like uh, I agree, if the rain could just wait until my tent's up, that would be a lot nicer. So I'm going to try that now. I've never done that, but maybe I should. I think that you just need to ask. Um, we We have this idea that especially those of us who were raised in a church in a more conventional, you know, not maybe today, but in a little while ago where it was a much more stringent, you know, you're a sinner and you need to be saved and you need to be blessed. I think there's a gentler way to go about it. And my life has been on a journey to be more accepting of myself. And I've realized that the universe is actually a very benevolent place, especially the woods. After I got over, I did get over my, my paranoia. And, um, and I realized that the woods are a very benevolent place. Um, you know, you absolutely, you absolutely have to take precautions and you don't leave food around and you don't, you know, you don't take chances. When I'm on my own, I don't go off trail. I tried that once and, uh, almost poked my eye out with a, with a branch, um, that was, you know, in the woods. <laughs> it was not a good idea. But yes, I think that, um, we just need to ask. I think the universe just wants to give to us. And I think if we have that sense that um, yes, we're, we can ask and, and we're worthy of, of being given to. I think it's a whole mindset change for some of us. And, um, and I think that there's all sorts of gifts that can happen as a result of that. And I experienced that de definitely in, in Algonquin Park. Yeah, I'm really fascinated with in the book how you're weaving your outward journey of taking the canoe trips and the portages and bear and animal encounters um, with your inward journey, um, spiritual and emotional. And I was wondering, like, and we were just talking about that, like how the, some of the links, I was wondering when you first noticed that they were linked, like, was there any specific incident that happened that really highlighted it to you or has it been a gradual evolution? There were actually two threads to that, um, to that realization. And they did, you know, when I, I left the church in the mid-1980s, I was 25 years old when I left the church. I hung in there for, for longer than some people do. Um, and I didn't immediately turn to the wilderness, not by a long shot. I was still living in downtown Toronto. Um, and it wasn't until after my first, that first day on that first lake, 1998, I actually met a park ranger on that lake. And I actually thought I wasn't going to have to go solo anymore that he was my one true paddling partner. We just clicked on so many levels. It didn't work out. I'm not giving anything away in the book because it's right on the back cover <laughs> that it didn't work out. And But that breakup, it was nine months after we got together and I by then had moved to my home now on the Madawaska River. So I was pretty isolated from my family and friends and I wasn't sure we were gonna last. And um, it was pretty clear we weren't and I was um, I was in bad shape I believe so strongly that we were meant to be together that I was almost physically wasting away in our breakup I wasn't sleeping I wasn't eating I was sliding into a depression and I had done so much work over the years I thought to come to love myself and accept myself but in this breakup 
I realized that I still didn't feel worthy of being loved. And it wasn't just by the ranger. I call him the ranger in the book. I don't name him. Um, it wasn't just by him, but by anyone. And I realized I had to dig deeper and um, really come to the root of what it was. And so I opened myself up to being loved. And I would go for these longs. I couldn't manage my usual breakneck, you know, hikes in the woods or any of the the, the more uh, strenuous things I do, the biking and the, the in the winter, the skiing. But so I would just go for these long, slow walks in the woods. And I'd look around me at at the lake out in front of me and the rocks along the shore and the trees above me and I'd see the creatures you know fly the birds flying up in the air the the ravens and the hawks and I'd see the little creatures in the woods going about their own business the the chipmunks and the squirrels and the porcupines and I realized that there was this presence and I felt this love from each and every like not just the creatures but but the water and the and the trees and the woods and I just felt I just realized there was this presence as Mother Earth and all her creatures and that all of the earth is imbued with love and that that love was available to me and that was really what gave me the courage to go on my first what I call my first real canoe trip which was in the year 2000 because of that loving presence so I think that was really the first time that I realized it but it was on that first trip in 2000 I was camped there was one night I couldn't avoid camping on a, a lake that had a girls camp on it and I was so afraid it was gonna you know ruin my my experience of solitude to hear this noisy camp <laughs> and I had to camp right across from it um, just because of late availability of campsites and I was, to my surprise I didn't mind the noise at all it was happy sounds of you know girls calling out and the and the whistles and the bells and and it brought back my own camp years. I had gone to summer camp as a teenager. It was a very evangelical Christian camp. And we had Bible study every morning. We had quiet time where we read from the Bible in our tent. Um, we had campfires in the evenings where campers would or and counselors would give their testimony, you know, giving their um, their story about how they came to Jesus and had accepted them, him as their personal savior. And um, we would go to church on Sunday mornings. Church was Chapel Point, which was outside across the lake from us. And we would either paddle there in cedar canvas canoes, or we would walk around the road to get to the chapel. And it was, you know, the walls were these stately pine trees and there were birds singing, you know, in the, in the trees. And I had this, I had this moment of realization camped across from this camp. I know how many years later that the whole sacredness of camping had been instilled in me at that camp um, where I associated, you know, I associated the woods with this sacred place. And I hadn't even realized that until I was camped across from that that girls camp that that one summer in 2000 and I hadn't even liked I'd learned all the things I needed to know you know I'd learned how to build a campfire usually in the rain of course and um, I'd learned how to what we called singling then single a canoe uh, I'd learned how to waterproof a sleeping bag in the days before we had dry bags and I hated doing all that stuff I wasn't <laughs> wasn't the most uh, enthusiastic camper but all those skills had served me so well when I did uh, come to camping later in my 20s and um, 
and that was my that was my second realization that um, that I associated that I associated the sacred with with the woods and with the lake. And so it made sense that it made sense to intertwine when I went to write the book. It was like, well, this makes total sense to to link those two, my interior journey with my with my journey into the park interior. They were intrinsically connected, it seemed to me. Yes, very, very uh, interesting. Now, you were going to do a reading from the book. That might be a good time now to do you think you want to do that now? Yes, I, I think that would be perfect. Absolutely. Yes. So this is um this is a, a scene from chapter five. There are nine chapters, and each chapter chronicles a separate canoe trip or a stay on one lake. Sometimes I just went and stayed on one lake and did day trips. I was also working on my first novel back then, uh, which was a thriller based on the true story of a friend of mine who went missing in 1995. It's called Tell Anna She's Safe, and a lot of my canoe trips that are chronicled in Tumble Home are me taking my manuscript with me and trying very hard to get something down on paper and trying to get, you know, a little bit more of it written because it was a very difficult story to tell. I'm not a person who's very sedentary by nature and I'm very restless and need to be moving. So to, be, to plant myself on one campsite for five days to write, I call the chapter Imprisoned in Paradise for good reason. <laughs> So before, just before that trip, we'd had six weeks of drought and um, the blueberry crop had all failed and I was a little worried about bears. And then just the day before that I went into the campsite, um, it started to rain and it poured rain for almost all of the five days <laughs> I was in there. But on the third or fourth morning, I woke up and it was not raining and I could hear the cooing of a loon um, outside the tent and I went out and um, went down to the to the shore and there were seven loons just beyond um, the shore and they put on quite a show for me a beautiful show for me and then I decided that um, I needed a change of scene I was I'd been confined to my tent for much of those days and so I was going to paddle up to a campsite um, at the north end of the lake and at the no also in that upper part of the lake was a beautiful slope of rock. It was treed with pines and other trees and there were blueberry bushes, but you could see the rock through all the undergrowth. It wasn't that heavy and it was just begging to be climbed. It wasn't, it was pretty steep, but not too steep that you couldn't climb it. So um, I'm just going to read um, a scene from that, uh, that trip up to the, to the north end of the lake. The campsite at the north end is on such a steep slope, there's barely a level place to sit, and nowhere quiet. A band of ravens is screaming at each other in a tree. Finally, I settle on one of the few flat rocks down at the water and open my notebook. The plan is to sit here to write for several hours, and then re reward my productive morning with a hike on the east shore slope. Somewhere beyond that slope is a ski trail, the same ski trail the ranger pointed out after bellowing his ecstasy into the little bay at the top of this very lake two years ago. The same ski trail the agent fantasized he would hike over to come for a visit this week. I can't help thinking what would happen if he did. In spite of the raven's continued screaming in the tree next door, I managed to scribble a three-page scene. Huge relief to get something down on paper besides ideas. Also, frustration. 
I'm antsy for exercise. Oh, to be a calm sort of person who sits and writes for six or eight hours straight, the way I imagine all the other writers in the world do. I climb in the boat. The ravens have stopped their racket at last. I push off with the paddle. The ravens, still blissfully silent, fly out from the trees and head down the shore toward the slopes I intend to climb. I count them as they go. Seven in all. Two circle over my head as if to invite me to follow, then fly on to catch up with the others. The boat glides along the shoreline below the steep slope, and I keep an eye out for a place to park it. From somewhere high on the hill comes a decidedly odd squawk. <laughs> Ravens have been known to make odd, unraven-like sounds, like the one last summer that made the sound of a brief, high-pitched alarm or siren outside the tent the morning my niece Harriet and I were soon to rescue our campsite hosts from a hypothermic spill. In retrospect, it was certainly a warning of the danger to come. The unexpected piercing sounds Raven is capable of making can also, I've read online, help bring about a shift in consciousness. If Bear was the catalyst for my shift into self-acceptance, I think Raven was there to shock it into my system. A bow-shaped crack in the rock makes the perfect little harbor for the canoe. I nose in and throw the rope over a dried-up shrub. On shore I scan the trees again. Are they up there? It's not a relaxed climb. I'm suddenly all too aware of bears. Would a hungry bear make an odd, unraven-like squawk to lure a human into the woods? I whistle. It helps. A little. I step around the rusty bread, the rusty red blueberry patches. Surely no bears will drop in if there are no berries. Could a bear mistake me for a blueberry? The need to move wins out over my wimpy nerves. I keep to the bare rock, weaving around the sunburnt bushes, climbing higher. The climb brings me to a lookout that turns out to be the north arm of a small horseshoe-shaped bay. I scan the densely treed hillside at the back of the bay. Suddenly from those trees emerges a band of birds. Blackbirds. Ravens. Seven. Without a sound, they sail out over the horseshoe bay. They fly toward me, past me, at eye level with me, and on out over the lake. They disappear out of view around the bend. I watch them go. Sorry I've disturbed them. Sorry to see them go. Moments later, to my delight, they reappear, circling back at an unhurried, graceful pace. They fly past me again, still at eye level, in a loose V formation, and back into the trees at the back of the bay, all in a serene black velvet whisper of wings. I train eyes on the trees to see if they'll come back out. There isn't a squawk or a rustle. If I hadn't seen them go in, I would have no idea they were there. The significance of seven was something that I, I pondered about later and realized that according to the study of numbers called numerology, uh, seven is the number of the scribe, as it turns out, and also the number of the seeker in solitude. And it struck me that I'd gone, gone out there as a person does under the influence of seven does to be alone away from the crowds to connect with nature. And solitude, of course, was necessary for me to penetrate the mystery of my characters who were giving me a lot of grief at that time. <laughs> and, and so I learned, I learned a lot of things about 
the writer in me, not just from the number seven, but also from the loons and the ravens. Loons are an ancient symbol for other levels of consciousness and for dreams. And um, loon could help me dive into my subconscious to understand myself. And I decided that by extension, it could help me to dive into my subconsciousness to help me understand my characters too. So, so that experience first with the loons in the morning and then with those incredible ravens again, was, was a way of helping me as a writer and as a person learning to love herself and accept herself. So many of my encounters in Algonquin had that same, um, same sense of revelation for me. Sounds so beautiful when you, when you write about it as well, you know, just even the, the actual occurrences at the time sounds so beautiful. And then when you can see more meaning, um, into what's happening as well, it just gets better and better. I know. And my gratitude grows deeper and deeper. I have to say, because I, I just feel so blessed by, by those encounters and they continue to happen. I don't even have to go in Algonquin to experience it, even where I live at home, you know, there, I, I get to paddle out my door, which is really nice. So I do see snapping turtles and ravens and eagles and, um, froggies and all sorts of creatures. And I always, especially sometimes a creature is just a creature is just going about his business. Um, but sometimes when it's to me, those ravens definitely were, it was an encounter that seemed to be a communication between us. And so when there's that sort of sense to it, it's not just that I see any, you know, a bird flying overhead, but when it, maybe when it turns around and swings back and does a little dip of its wings to me, that's when I feel like, okay, I've got to, I've got to pay attention to this. I have to go look up what Raven's meaning is. And there's usually some message that totally resonates with me in that moment. And I just think the earth is full of those gifts. And we just, I think we just have to pay attention. You know, you've been canoeing on your own for two or three decades now, and I was wondering how your experience being out in the bush on your own has changed over those years. Well, um, those first few years were taken up with uh, my extreme fear of bears. I did not sleep at night. I uh, I've sang on the portages. I My favorite things to sing were hymns. I figured, you know, that was stronger medicine than, than just regular secular songs. If I could sing hymns to the bears, they might pay attention and keep away. Um, so there was that. And, and then I, um, I did, I did finally sign a peace treaty with the bears and that's chronicled in, in chapter eight, I think, um, where I had one particular encounter that made me realize that, okay, there's, there's room for both me and the bears. Um, and, I just need to ask permission to pass through their territory. And so my trips now are, they're, they're much quieter. <laughs> I don't, I don't sing on portage trails anymore. I actually stopped singing because I started to take a dog with me, um, in 2005. And, uh, for the last 16 years, I've had a dog with me and I let the dog do the listening in the night. And so that sort of settled me down too. But my dog, Maddie, who I took with me, for 13 years she died last summer and so my trips have become truly solo again but didn't you have a, a another dog with like the most perfect name yes joy so joy was my first dog that i ever had as a companion and she's featured in chapters eight of and nine of tumble home um we had some wonderful canoe trips together i, I was only blessed with her presence for uh, two or three years in my life um 
um, she went on to another journey. But yes, we had amazing times together. But my trips didn't feel solo anymore because I was so concentrating on her. She became she became another being on my trips as in the almost the same way as another person would be. And I found I wasn't getting into that same deep sense of of dialogue between me and the elements and the weather and the and me, you know, doing what I do now, which is to basically pray every step of the way between the asking and the thanking and the trusting. So I've returned to that, I would say, my first. So I've had two trips now with no dog. And even though the first one was very emotional because I missed uh, my dog Maddie so much, this last trip that I just came back from, I was much more used to being on my own again now. And I really did discover that I returned to that deep inner silent state that brings on the continuous dialogue with the elements and um, with the divine. And and I don't sing on the portages anymore. I don't have the energy. I don't know how I used to do. I don't know how I used to carry a canoe and then a pack because I do two trips. I do a trip with the boat um, and then I do it. I go back and get the packs. I have a food pack and a gear pack. I usually carry one on the front and one on the back. And I seriously don't know how I had the energy to sing as well as carry because I tried to sing on this last trip and went, okay, I'm just going to sing in my head and hope the bears can hear me in my head. And I, I don't really feel it's necessary. I do feel like I can communicate in a silent way with the creatures around me. So I did ask the bears on this trip to please, you know, I wanted to let them know I was there and that I was passing through their territory and asked permission. And I never did see a bear. I saw all the other creatures I asked for the moose and the otters and the eagles and the froggies and the turtle. I saw a beautiful snapping turtle on this trip. And, um, but I asked not to see the bears <laughs> and that request was granted as well. So the other, on a very practical level, the way that my trips have changed is that um, I'm 61 now and I started my first solo trip when I was 37 or eight, I guess. And um, I'm slower. <laughs> I realized my, my, I use, I always time my portages because on a longer portage, I only want to carry the canoe so far and then I put it down and I go back for the, for the pack. And then I carry the pack a little ways past the canoe because I can carry a pack farther than I can carry a canoe and, um, and go back. So I do these relays. So I'm always timing them. And on this trip, I was doing a 2100 meter portage and in my head, I was going to do a 15 minute kilometer. So you know, it should take me just over half an hour to get to the end. Well, I swear the end never came and I felt like I was walking 3K, um, not 2K. <laughs> I didn't trust the maps. I think it's good you're still doing them. Even if it takes longer. Yeah, like when I go hiking, when when I see like 70-year-old uh, people out on the trail, I'm like, that is so impressive. Like, that's what I want to be when I get older. So... I think it's okay if it's taken longer. I think that's just par for the course. Well, and that's what I had to tell myself because I used to set these little mini challenges for myself. Um, there was one trip chronicled in Tumble Home where I was just doing a, a short uh, three-day trip. And so I decided I was going to fit the food pack into the gear pack and I was going to carry the gear pack with the canoe and do it all in one go. And I managed to do that. But 
there's no way I'm going to do that now. And I don't have anything to prove. I, it doesn't matter. There were some portages on this trip where I dropped the food pack from the front of me and thought, I don't want to carry both of these. It's too heavy. And I just went back. It's like, who cares how many times it takes you to get to the end of the portage, Brenda? <laughs> so it was more my own pride that had to go. It's like, oh, it takes me 20 minutes to walk a kilometer under a boat now. But I'm being very careful. I'm, you know, my steps are very slow and methodical because I do not want to trip on a route or slip in the mud or, you know, stumble on a slippery rock. So I'm very careful with my footing. The last thing I need is a sprained ankle out there. So, you know, you said um, earlier when we were talking that you originally began to canoe by yourself because you couldn't find anyone to go with you. And it sure sounds like that's not the reason you go on your trips now. I think one of the quotes I really love from the book um, and I'm going to read it here, is um, you wrote, people talk about going into the wilderness to disconnect, which is good. I go into the bush to reconnect. And uh, that was, that really hit me because um, I think that's a really good point. Like that is what I think I like about being out in nature is just I mean not just reconnecting with uh, the earth or the creatures but also reconnecting with oneself as well so I thought that was quite poignant well we think of ourselves as separate from especially now that we live such urban lives we think of ourselves as separate from the natural world you know we talk about going out into the woods and coming back out you know, and we talk about disconnecting. Oh, now we're talking about from our devices and our real lives, quote unquote. But, um, but yes, I, I, we are, we're part of, we're part of the earth. Um, we've disconnected ourselves. <laughs> um, we're as much a part of the natural world as any other creature is. And I think that was part of my realization um, that made me more comfortable going in the woods was that I realized that I'm, I have a place here too. And, um, you know, as long as I'm respectful of other creatures who, you know, might, might not be too happy to see me, um, uh, mostly they run away. Um, but, um, but I think that, that, yeah, we, we all have a place there. And, um, so, and I think it can really help us to reconnect to who we really are. I, um, I just, I believe that we all have, um, a divine presence inside us too. I think that, that love is in all of us it's in all the creatures it's in every rock tree um body of water it's it's the force that animates the universe and that includes human beings as well and i think the the more we can slow down and reconnect to that part of ourselves the more we're going to be more accepting of each other be more accepting be more accepting of each other's differences and i think that's going to save us as a species um you know from destroying both the earth and ourselves if we can just if we can reconnect to that um the, that what i call the divine core in us in each of us it has been so great talking to you brenda i'm so glad we finally got to do this podcast after so many tries um it's so <laughs> You know, I, I'm reading the book for the third time right now, and I'm still enjoying it so much, so I can really recommend it. 
um, to any listeners out there. Um, if any of you wanted to read more about Brenda, she has her own website, which is brendamisson.com. And you can also go to her publisher's website. Her publisher is Inanna Publications. And we'll um, give you those links in the show notes um, so you can look that up. And we're going to get some photos from Brenda that we're going to put on social media so you can get an idea what canoeing solo in Algonquin Park looks like. I haven't seen them yet, so I'm excited to see those images as well. So once again, thanks so much, Brenda. I'm so glad we got to have this talk. Oh, thank you, Karen. I really appreciate your persisting with a, my lack of technical expertise, and B, my compute, my whole system in my rural area not being up to par. <laughs> I'm just so glad we, I'm so glad we made this happen. It's been, it's been such an honor to talk to you, and, and I really appreciate that you, that you looked me up and found me even before the book was published. You know, I was, I was so, um, so honored that you contacted me to ask to talk about Tumble Home. So thank you so much. Very welcome. Cheerio. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10 Adventures.